Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. On December 2nd, the United Kingdom became the first country to approve a COVID-19 vaccine. And at that moment, the pandemic entered a new phase. Given the historic speed with which these vaccines have been developed, their ultimate efficacy is a question on everyone's minds. But in parts of the world, those places without the necessary infrastructure or the money, the question for now is when or if a COVID vaccine will ever become widely available. To help us unpack this critical moment, I've got two of my colleagues with me here today. Caroline Nauman is an Associate Director for Crisis and Security Consulting and is also Control Risk's COVID-19 Advisory Lead for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Caroline has a master's degree from the Harvard School of Public Health, and she is our resident public health expert at Control Risks. Hi, Chuck. Joseph Smith is a senior analyst responsible for providing analysis on international business issues, including geopolitics, transnational terrorism, direct action, sanctions, and risks related to climate change in his free time. Joe's most recent superpower is his role as one of the leaders on our analysis of the vaccine rollout. Joe, welcome. Hi, Chuck. Looking forward to the discussion. Control Risk is going to be talking a lot about vaccines in the coming days, in the coming weeks, and in the months to come in 2021. Caroline, let's start with something fairly basic. The big news out there is that the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines are both 95% effective. This almost sounds too good to be true. Caroline, what on earth does 95% effective really mean? Yeah, I mean, if you take it at face value, 95% sounds like, oh, problem solved, but it's it's really not that simple. What we have witnessed and are witnessing is a massive scientific achievement, but a vaccine's effectiveness is only one piece of a, of a really complicated puzzle. So you also have to think about supply chain, demographics, feasibility, population uptake, and a number of other factors. So a country's basic and pharmacological infrastructure play a key role, as do how the population is distributed, meaning in cities or in rural areas, and then if the population even wants to get vaccinated. You used a very fancy phrase there called pharmacological infrastructure. Tell us what that is. So what I mean by that is essentially the, the, the supply chain that you have in place to deal with moving pharmaceuticals, so in this case, the COVID vaccine, from the manufacturer to the end user. So that's something along the lines of the supply chain, or in this case, what's really critical is the cold chain. So the temperature controls that are in place from the beginning to the end to make sure that these vaccines are safe and effective by the time they get to that end user. So Pfizer vaccine, for instance, has to be negative 70 degrees Celsius, which is astronomical. Moderna has to be negative 20 degrees Celsius. This is significantly colder than you know, normal vaccines, which are around uh, three to five degrees Celsius or so that can be in your fridge. So the structures that you have in place to move those from point A to point Z, we're building the tools and the systems to do that at the same time as 
the vaccine is being approved by governments. There's really two parallel tracks that are running at the same time and really relying on each other to work out. So basically what you're saying is that the liquid in the bottle could be 95% effective, but if you can't get it anywhere, it is essentially 0%. Exactly. Exactly. One of my favorite sayings is you, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. In this case, you have to dig the pond. You have to put the water in the pond. You have to build the road. You have to pave the road. And then you have to lead the horse and not forget that the horse has a mind of its own. So the horse might not want to drink that water. You have to convince it to drink the water. Joe, without extending the equine metaphor too much longer, you have specifically been looking at resistance to vaccination. You've been looking at it in the United States and Europe and in other parts of the world. Joe, what are some of the factors that build in behind getting people to roll up their sleeves? There are factors that contribute to people's confidence in a vaccine or people's lack of confidence in a vaccine in normal times. And there are factors that contribute specifically to lack of confidence with regards to a COVID-19 vaccine. In normal times, we're talking about things like the belief that a vaccine may be ineffective or that there may be medical risks which are greater than the benefits that that vaccine provides. Or perhaps indeed things like the lack of trust in, in government, lack of trust in the pharmaceutical sector. And in some countries, both of those drivers for lack of confidence in vaccines are likely to have been fueled in a year when governments have imposed much more on our lives and when pharmaceutical companies have taken center stage. There are a few other things which I think we need to think about with the COVID-19 vaccine specifically, which will impact that sort of hesitancy or level of confidence that people may have in rolling up their sleeves. And those relate specifically to the speed with which a vaccine has been produced that may lead some people to have concerns that corners have been cut. And also as well, things like the spread of conspiracy theories. It's really interesting that we live in a very fast-paced world where speed is usually a good thing. And this is one of the instances, and I actually can't think of any other examples, where speed is actually leading some people to doubt it. Absolutely. I, one of the interesting developments that I've been watching over the last couple of weeks is a lot of the discussion around the UK's regulator, the MHRA, which was the first to, to grant approval to the Pfizer vaccine for its rollout. Hearing some interviews with people who've expressed concern about the speed with which the MHRA has, has granted approval to, to the first COVID-19 vaccine and asking why haven't other regulators granted approval on the same timeframes. And because of that discrepancy, it's leading some people to question whether they should take the vaccine or not. Joe, you just mentioned something about what happens over a certain period of time. And, and we are talking about timing, which is absolutely critical to the development and to the rollout of the vaccine. But what happens to vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccination sentiments over time? Do, do they evolve? I mean, after a while, people will see their neighbors are going to get vaccinated, their friends are going to get vaccinated, their colleagues are going to get vaccinated. Does that change things at all? Definitely. I, I think that it can it can change things in two directions. I mean, we've already seen over the last few months polling about whether people would be willing to take a COVID-19 vaccine. We've already seen sort of ebb and flow in that in that polling data. Some people may see new curbs on their on their liberties going into 2021 as a reason to get the vaccine as soon as possible. Others who are seeing or interpreting the sort of continued government interventions as nefarious in some way may may not. But there are there are a whole range of other factors, triggers maybe that could dampen confidence. 
I mean, when you get a vaccine of any kind, often there are some kind of mild side effects, which which are entirely normal. But potentially, you can, you can see circumstances where people uh, experience some mild side effects and decide not to go back for their booster shot if it's a two dose vaccine, which most of those that we're talking about at the moment are. But there are other facts as well. I talked about sort of different approval speeds of regulatory agencies. Will that lead people to question the value of one over another or the, the opinion of one over another? Will people start to conflate different vaccines with each other? So they see bad news or poor trial results from one vaccine. Will they start to apply that to all vaccines out there? And then there's a whole question around politicization as well. I know that some of our colleagues in Brazil have talked quite a lot about the issue of the growing politicization around vaccines there and how that could undermine the prospects of large-scale immunization campaigns. Carolyn, you touched on logistical challenges, and you have lived and worked in Syria. You've worked in South Sudan. You've worked in Yemen. Based on that experience and the logistical challenges that you see that might even happen where you're living now in a sophisticated, advanced country like Germany, how does this work? So I, I used to manage NGO health programs in countries such as the ones that you mentioned, which are really some of the most difficult operating environments in the world. That being said, the difficulties that we will we are facing and will face with this COVID vaccine rollout is not only in countries like Syria and South Sudan and Yemen, it's also in Germany, it's also in the US, it's also in the UK, and so on and so forth. Let's think about the Ebola vaccine for a second. So the Ebola vaccine actually also has a very difficult cold chain to maintain. So that required negative 80 degrees Celsius. This is back in 2014. Just think you're in West Africa, 2014, negative 80. How on earth are you going to distribute that? And how are you going to see whether the temperature is safe? At that point, our solution was literally to hire a man to sit in a pharmacy in Sierra Leone or Guinea or Liberia, wherever you are, around the clock and stare at the deep freezers where the vaccines are. So if the light ever changed from green to red, he would alert the medical staff because it meant that the vaccine in the freezer was too warm and might not be viable anymore. These days, I was just listening to another podcast, actually, where they were talking about the same thing, monitoring temperature. And what Pfizer is doing in the US right now is in, they've installed a temperature tracker that looks at the temperature of each batch from the beginning. So from the manufacturer all the way to that end user at the hospital. And the hospital, you know, they, they open up the magical freezer, they open up that smaller container within it, and they look at the monitor. And if the monitor shows a red or a green light, it shows whether or not the temperature was maintained throughout the entire journey. It's a fancier way to do it, but it's the same problem. Caroline, what happens when the light does go red? And, and what happens if somebody drops a shipment or carton full of vials? It's inevitable. Whatever country you're in, the light will go red. I mean, I was speaking to a colleague in one of the major vaccination players, and he was telling me a really interesting anecdote about literally in the test phase of this of this vaccine, a batch was delivered to the wrong address. And so it sat outside in in a very hot place and baked for a good, you know, a couple of hours before people figured out where on earth this batch was and they went and picked it up and so on, but the batch was done. You know, you couldn't use it anymore. And so that was in, you know, one of the most industrialized countries in the world. So the light is going to turn red inevitably and it's just how it goes. So you have to when you're planning and you're pre-planning on how many doses you're going to buy if you're a country, that has to go into the equation and so we're looking at, you know, the numbers 
which seem astronomical, the US, Canada, others are, are buying, and Joe probably has the numbers on the top of his head, X number two, three, four times the number of population in doses. And part of that has to be because of this anticipated wastage. Right. So Caroline has just set you up. So clarify, elucidate for us a little bit, the kind of global checkerboard of vaccination programs and countries that have ordered enough, countries that haven't, countries that haven't ordered yet. How does this all play out? And and I guess more importantly, what we're aiming for here is to get enough vaccine out there so that countries can begin to lift their pandemic restrictions. So Joe, you know, unpack that for us a bit. With every vaccination campaign, there is inevitably a certain amount of wastage, a large amount of wastage. The WHO puts the figure at about 50% of vaccines that are wasted. I mean, putting that in the grand scheme of what we're talking about here, where you have about 10 plus billion doses of vaccines that are supposed to be produced by the end of 2021, if you think about 50% wastage there, then that starts to look like a much less positive picture for the outlook of, uh, of this pandemic during that time frame. And that 50% wastage is for easier to deal with vaccines. So I would guess the percentage might be even more. Exactly. And I mean, just, just to stay on that point, we're talking about the potential for vaccines that only need to be distributed at sort of refrigerated temperatures, two to eight degrees Celsius coming on board in the coming months. Even that will present its challenges. I mean, you think about some of the global population that live in countries where there is uneven, patchy electricity supply, even maintaining refrigerated temperatures in certain parts of the world will be very difficult, especially when you're trying to do that at a massive scale. But in terms of the global distribution, to come back to your question a bit more, Chuck, I mean, it, it will be highly uneven. We've been developing a series of vaccine scenarios for 2021. And I think that the, the one common thread that all of our scenarios say is that there will be a big difference in access between countries. There's been a lot of talk about so-called vaccine nationalism over the last few months. Caroline mentioned wealthy governments have, have pre-purchased millions or indeed billions of doses of some of the most promising vaccines. It's about three quarters of the 10 billion plus doses of vaccines available or that are, that are likely to be available by the end of 2021 that have been purchased by those wealthier countries. So Joe, does that mean that basically everybody else goes to the bottom of the line? It means that other countries are either waiting on multilateral initiatives, so the provision of vaccines through initiatives like COVAX, or that they're waiting until they see the final results from clinical trials before deciding which vaccines to buy themselves unilaterally, unlike those, those wealthy nations which have basically hedged their bets and bought enough doses in some cases to vaccinate their population several times over. Caroline, We've mostly been talking about governments. What is the, the current role or is there a future role? What do companies do in this scheme? Yeah, it, it's interesting because right now the players are governments. The buyers are governments. But uh, rumblings have already begun about what if private employers or companies were to buy vaccines and vaccinate their own staff, partially as a duty of care, partially as wanting to get back to business sooner before the competition get that edge. But we're not there yet. But the conversation is is starting to happen. There's no timeline or prediction that I feel comfortable making or we could make about 
when companies or private sector could play a, a more substantial role in the distribution of actual vaccines and vaccinating their staff. But I think it's a really interesting, almost ethical discussion because you and Joe, we were talking about this earlier, because you have the question about, let's say, you know, massive multinational company buys enough vaccine to blanket vaccinate its entire staff who are young, healthy, you know, working age people. And they get the vaccine before people with pre-existing conditions or, you know, people's grandmothers or even healthcare workers. So, you know, at what point do these dual realities, will they come to pass together? And maybe they will and maybe they won't. Joe, what is your best estimate for when we see countries start to roll back restrictions? I think it, it very much depends on the country. So we've seen countries take very different approaches during the pandemic to date. Some that have tried to completely eradicate the virus, others that have tried to manage or avoid exponential growth in infection rates, others that have basically been chomping at the bit to open up their economies and, and have let the virus spread. I think that what we'll see is that vaccination campaigns will allow countries to remove those restrictions, those non-pharmaceutical interventions gradually. But based on what we've seen over the last year, the speed with which they reopen will likely correlate with the levels of caution that they've already demonstrated in 2020. Caroline, for you, will we need to have a vaccine passport to get on a plane? And I'm just picking that as an example, but you know, to go to the cinema, to renew our gym memberships, to go back into the office. You mentioned the ethical dilemmas. I'm sure there are legal questions around this issue. But what's the direction of travel on this? No pun intended. In terms of requiring proof of vaccination in order to function? Yes. I think we're going to see it. I think we're going to see it. Regarding businesses and employers, I mean, they have to do with things like the labor law in each individual country, which will be more restrictive or less restrictive, depending where you are. But in order to go to concerts or cinema or who, who knows, I do see a potential for proof of vaccination or immunity being around. I mean, this is a really interesting example. Iceland has recently announced that people who have had COVID and therefore are currently immune can travel to Iceland. But how do you prove that you've had it? You've got to present an antibody test, yeah? You have to present an antibody test, but then of course you have the science on the other side. We don't know how long the antibodies or your, your immunity lasts for or what strains you might be immune to if it's mutated and so on and so forth. So there's all the, the scientific stuff as well to consider, but that's a whole branch of economy. I mean, in, in a world where tourism is you know, frozen, more or less, this is a new way of thinking about it. And so when we work with, with companies and businesses and so on, that type of sort of innovative thinking, taking advantage, making lemonade out of lemons is really what we're going for. The reason why I asked this question, Caroline, is in the work that Joe and I are doing together, we've already come across a number of countries that require proof that you've taken a test before you can do certain things. So I guess the next logical step is about proof of a vaccine. Joe, is, is that what your feeling is? This is going to be part of the discussion over the next year. I think that it's going to come in quite gradually, though. We've seen a lot of talk about vaccine passports, vaccine certificates, specifically with regards to what you mentioned earlier, people having to get on a plane. The aviation industry specifically here has suffered quite a lot during this pandemic with, with tourism, with travel right down. Their priority will be to get people on a plane as quickly as possible. There are still quite a lot of questions about vaccines specifically. We don't know yet whether vaccines 
will be proved effective at preventing transmission of coronavirus as well as preventing people from getting sick. And that's obviously going to be a big part for requiring it for people to get on a plane. We don't know yet how long immunity from a vaccine will last. And also, I think no vaccine is going to be 100% effective, or so far, that's what it's looking like anyway. And so I think we may see it being brought in as a requirement for things like international travel, but it will be part of a sort of multi-pronged approach that's going to still require things like pre-flight testing, among other measures. I think we should probably wrap it up for now, which means I should say thank you, first of all, to Caroline Nauman in Germany from our crisis and security consultancy practice. Caroline, thank you for the comments. It's been really, really informative talking to you. No, thanks for the excellent conversation. And Joe, we talk almost every day, sometimes several times a day, and quite often about vaccines. So thank you very much for sharing some of your insights with us today. Thanks very much, Chuck. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And get ready for Risk Map 2021 coming in January. RiskMap is Control Risk's annual flagship forecast of security and political risk and includes our top five risks for 2021, key topics picked by our analysts, and a calendar of geopolitical events to take you through to the end of the year. Everything for RiskMap 2021 is on controlrisks.com, it's on LinkedIn, it's on Twitter, and it's even on Instagram. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient at controlrisks.com. Thank you, and bye for now.